Romans chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 1 to 13. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Paul is uh, arguing with a hypothetical, not necessarily imagined opponent who is thinking that being justified, being declared right with God, gives us license to live any way that we please. So Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Let's pray. Father, these truths are are so powerful and so deep and we will not grasp them. We will not take them to heart. What it means to be in Christ and dead to sin and alive to You. Accept, O God, that You make it happen. Accept that You help us except that You give to us Your Holy Spirit. You promised in Your Word that if You have already given to us Your Son, how will You not also with Him graciously give us all things? You promised in Your Word, Father, that if we who are evil are yet able to give good gifts to our children, how much more will You give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we know this is Your Word You said it, you say it, and we claim these promises. We ask for your Holy Spirit. We ask, Father, that we would realize in our lives very practically this week with victory over sin what it means to die to it and to be alive to you. What it means, O Lord, to be in Christ. So help us. Do great things in us for your name and honor. 
In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. The good news of what Jesus Christ has done in you and what Jesus Christ has done for you must saturate your mind and must flood your soul. Because if you do not know who you are in New Testament gospel terms, if you don't know who you are in the gospel, then as you strive for holiness, to pursue the Lord, to live for Him, to love Him, to praise Him, to please Him, if you don't know who you are, all of that striving for holiness can lead you right into heartache and on the edge of despair. If you don't know who you are, you must think of yourselves. You must understand who you are, your identity, in terms of the New Testament Gospel. We must talk about ourselves even in the way that the New Testament talks about us. And so how does the New Testament Gospel talk about believers? This is what the Bible says. You and I are in Christ. This is the fundamental way that the Bible describes the person who has believed in Jesus and is following Him, who is saved, forgiven of their sin, righteous in the sight of God. We are in Christ. This is who you are in terms of the Gospel and this is who you are fundamentally. Now, what does it mean to be in Christ? It's not that we don't have anything in this world to, to compare it to, any example or illustration, but for some reason, I think this is one of the devil's schemes, when it comes to this kind of terminology in Christ, we, we forget that we're not children anymore. Children are going to be thinking literally. They're going to picture this in their minds, in Jesus. They're going to be thinking location. Like, if you would open up the glorified body of Jesus and you could see inside and you could see, you could see who is in him. They're right there. All those little people sitting in the spaces between his ribs. You see them and they see you. They're like, hi. They give their little wave. It's cartoonish. It's creepy. And it's not what Paul means. It's not what the New Testament means by this terminology in Christ. I think that Paul prefers, he loves this terminology because there is no greater union and no closer relationship that you can have with something than to be in it, in that something. There's no greater union no closer relationship than to speak of being in it. It's one of the ways that we talk about being accepted by people. When we finally get accepted, we think, okay, I'm in. You know, I'm, I'm in with the cool kids. I'm in the club, so to speak. Uh, think of becoming a member of a club, okay? Like, like a civic club. You hand in your application. I don't know how, if this is how it works, but I'm imagining you hand in your application and after due deliberations, finally you get word back, okay, you're in. 
And it means to be in means that they have accepted you, that they have received you. You're a part of it and you're a member. So being in isn't speaking spatially, like location. And we understand that when we, when we talk about, you know, being in a club or in with these people or whatever, we don't imagine being in them. So why do we think that way when it comes to being in Christ? There's a big disconnect. I, I, I think Satan's doing his work there that we would so miss, uh, so easily misunderstand the word of God. He is not speaking spatial, spatially. He is speaking relationally. In Christ, no closer union. We are joined to Christ. We are members of Christ. We are grafted into Christ. One with Christ like a bride becomes one with her groom and like a a branch is grafted into a vine. So the way that Paul speaks of it, at the beginning of Romans 6, I believe it's verse 3, he terms it this way, that we have been baptized into Christ. See that? We've been baptized into Him. To be baptized means to be identified with Christ. That's why we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are identified with Christ. Now, Paul is first and foremost, I believe, speaking spiritually. At the moment that you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you were baptized by the Spirit into Christ. You were joined to Him, united to Him, and identified with Him. And the implications of being in Christ are absolutely massive. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Or Romans 8.1, There is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.9, Paul said that he had given up everything in order to gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness which comes from the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. You see what it means to be in Christ? His record is your record. His standing is your standing. It's not that you share Christ's substance like you are a little God, a mini-God, or something like that. Not that you share His substance, but that you share with Christ His standing. So, His righteousness is your righteousness. His holiness is your holiness. His freedom is your freedom. For you are found in Christ by faith. Now, one of the implications of being in is being with. Inness leads to withness. And that participation, that being with, goes far beyond your present involvement. Let me go back to the whole civic club, member of a civic club illustration. Okay, so you're in the club. You've been in the club maybe six months. Long enough that you've been tested and you've been proven true enough so that you can go out and recruit 
new members for the club. So you're, you're sent out and you think through your list of friends and who might be interested in joining the club and, um, you know, who might qualify to really contribute something and to make a difference. So you scroll through your list of friends, you think of that one, and you go to that individual and you start promoting the club. And the person has all kinds of questions. Well, tell me about this civic club. You know, tell me what the club stands for and, and what you guys do and things like that. And so you start to talk like this. You say, well, we were founded in 1991. And do you remember that disaster in 1996? Well, we were involved in disaster relief. We we raised money for uh, disaster relief funds. Uh, we try to emphasize, we always have right from the beginning, helping widows who are in need in the community and focusing on infrastructure needs and things like that. Remember that impressive event held a few years back? Well, that was us. We did that. Uh, we've always tried to do things this way and so on. Well, wait a second. Hold on. What is all this we talk? You've only been a member for six months, right? But the person that you're recruiting doesn't think that. He doesn't think, wait a second, you can't say that. It makes sense to him because you are in. And you have a participation much more than your present involvement. You have a shared history. You're a participant. You are with. And so you can claim these things without a second thought, and they don't think that you are crazy for talking like that. It's the same way when we talk about being a citizen of a country. You have a, an American teacher teaching American students and saying something like, we were in Vietnam for this long of time, and until 1975, and during that time we lost this many soldiers to the fight. And none of the students are looking around thinking, what is this we business? You know, we weren't there. That makes sense to them. Even little children know instinctively that we are a part. We are citizens. We are members. That makes sense. Um, they know it's not a fiction. It's not mind games. The we is real because we're members joined to it. There's a shared history and a shared future. There's shared losses and those are shared rewards because of the inness. There is a withness. Being in Christ leads to a lot of with Christ talk in the New Testament that is absolutely mind-boggling and staggering that these things are true because we are in Christ. So the Bible says, look down in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, because we are in Christ, we were buried with Him by baptism into death. Look at verse 5. We have been united with Him in a death like His, so therefore we will be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Verse 8. We have died with Christ. So we believe also we will live with Christ. You see, in leads to with. We Let me sum it up like this. Being in Christ does not mean that we share Christ's substance, but we share His standing. Having been with doesn't mean that we share in the Godhead, but that we share in all of Christ's good. So His righteousness 
and His reward are yours who are in Christ. So if you are in Christ, then the Bible says to you that a most remarkable change has happened in your life. And it's going to be evidenced by the holiness of your life. The only thing that can describe this radical break with sin that has taken place in you, radical, stark, fundamental break with sin, the only thing in life that can begin to convey it is death. There has been a death to sin. A fundamental, radical break with sin. And the only way to describe, to convey the newness, the stark, brand newness of the new you, is resurrection. There has been a death. And there has been a resurrection. Dead to sin. And alive to God. This is who you are. And we're not playing mind games. This isn't some fantasy or a fancy philosophy. You know, discover this secret to fulfill, you know, the real you or whatever. It's not elitist knowledge. This is just the plain truth of your identity. You're in Christ. When I'm on the uh, last couple days, I've shared this with our church family before, and they're probably sick of hearing it. But uh, when I am on the last couple days of vacation with my family back home, the end of July, and uh, when I get to those last couple days, it, it's hard. Um, I one big reason is just coming back to the heat. Okay. It's end of July, beginning of August, and I know what I'm going to come back up or back down to. And I've been basically, I've been been up, George, not down. Remember that? And uh, basically paradise. And so I'm thinking, oh man, it's gonna it's gonna be rough. So I, what I do is is I, I have this mind game, and I think, okay, just got here, and I've got two days, like a weekend, to spend with my family. Be on the water, swim in the lake, hike a trail, visit the bakery. The bakery, it's so good. And I, I pretend that I just got there. Most of my brain tells me that I'm really dumb and I should never confess that weirdness publicly like I just did. Um, but so you, it's a mind game, you know? It's just a, it's a trick. It's, it's a psychological, you know, dumbness. Anyway, is that what Paul is doing? Is he just playing a mind game? Okay, because you're, you're going to go home this afternoon and, and you're going to commit the same sin this afternoon that you swore off on the way to church this morning and you very much feel condemned and you feel like a slave. You feel powerless to the sin. You can't escape it. And now Paul is saying in verse 11, well, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Just, you know, pretend. Think positive thoughts. Empty yourself of all the negativity. So let it go. It's not a mind game. It is based on a reality. 
the reality of the historic death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, on the third day of his burial, was really, truly raised bodily from the grave, triumphant. And God declares that you are in Him. You have died with Him. And with Him you have new life unto God. That's the reality. That's the truth. And this is who you are. This is who you are fundamentally. You're not your last name. You're not your citizenship. You're not your ethnicity. You are not your marital status. You are not your gender. You are not your accomplishments. You are not the sins of your youth. You are not the sins of your old age. You are not the last sin that you committed that is screaming your guilt. This is not who you are. You are in Christ. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. It's not a mind trick. It's not a fiction. It's not a fancy philosophy. It's who you are actually, which God has declared through the perfect, finished work of His Son. You are bound to Him. You are in Him. So this is how you must think of yourself. The death Jesus died, verse 10 of Romans 6, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also who are in Him must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's in this confidence that we wage our war against the sin that corrupts us. It's in this confidence, knowing that the penalty of the sin, listen, the sin that you will resist today, listen, even the sin that you will succumb to this afternoon, that sin is already forgiven. The penalty of that sin is already paid. The debt is already canceled. The record is already wiped clean. It's expunged. And the power of that sin is already broken. It will not have dominion over you. The tyranny is no more. There has been a fundamental break. So radical, it's called death. And so new are you that the Bible says you are raised. You have been made alive with Christ. You are seated with Christ. You will be glorified with Christ. And you will reign with Christ. So how do you make spiritual advances in this life? It feels like slogging. It feels like plodding through a swamp. Like your feet are stuck in this muck. How do you... How do you forge ahead? How do you overcome what wars against your soul? And when you have fallen into the muck, how do you return to the Lord without fear? You hear Him say again. And you remind yourself of who you are. You are in Jesus. You are undefeated and undefeatable. The enemy, it is true, 
is plotting against you. He is on the prowl. He is vicious. He is preying on you. But he does not stand a chance because you are in Christ. You are bound to Christ, united to Christ. His death is your death. Satan can make all the accusations he wants. But the death has already been suffered. There is no more condemnation. What accusation can be raised? You are in Christ justified. So this truth of being in Him is what undergirds and what binds together all of our salvation. Again, this good news must saturate your mind and must flood your soul because I'm telling you, if you don't know who you are, if you don't understand your identity in terms of the gospel, being in Christ, you're gonna make, you're gonna go forward, you're gonna make strides, you're gonna live for the Lord, you're going to want to, to please Him, you're gonna long for Him, and all of that, but all of that striving for holiness, if you do not know who you are, will lead you to heartache on the edge of despair. When I was a freshman in college, 18 years old, I was seeking the Lord earnestly like I had never sought the Lord before, and I was learning Christ, and I was learning myself. And as I was realizing and and beholding Christ, I found that there were layers and depths of sin in my heart and my life that I had never known were there. So the better that I knew me, the more unsteady I got in in what God must feel toward me. When I was a little, I, I remember when I was a little boy, just remember this one occasion, but I'm sure there were many. I remember climbing up into my dad's lap and putting my head against his chest. He was wearing a sweater and it was just, he was so warm. And I just remember the, the security of that and the enjoyment of that. And that's all that I want from the Lord. I, I want to be brought in. I want to be drawn into His arms, taken up. I want to be held tight to Him. I want to be sought out to be enjoyed. I long for the Lord who is glorious and who is beautiful, but how can He, who who knows my, my wretchedness even better than I do, how can He long for me? I enjoy Him, but how can He enjoy me. And that's a horrible feeling. You want to give up. You think, what is the point of going forward? If God does not love me gladly, if He only gives to me grudgingly, what's the point? Can you imagine what it feels like to be Jesus? And I'm not talking about His sovereign power. I'm not talking about what divine wisdom feels like. I mean, what does it feel like? What must it feel like to be loved so perfectly and completely by God and and know it? 
What, what must that feel like? From all of eternity, Jesus, having the exact character and being of the Father, has been the Father's delight and been the Father's joy. He has been the Son of God's love. He obeyed the Father perfectly, adding to His divine being, human being, and laying down that human being in death, even death on a cross. And the Father, pleased with His Son, raised Him up, seated Him in the heavenly places, exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the highest name, that name that is above all names. He honored His Son. What must it be like to be so completely loved by God and secure in that love? Whatever it is to feel it, I believe that the Bible teaches that we have it. We might not have the sweet, full experience and enjoyment of it, but it is ours in Christ. Jesus Christ Himself astonishingly said so just before He was arrested in John 17. He said that His Father in Heaven loves His own, loves his, the followers of Jesus as even as He loves the Son. If Jesus was not so plain in John 17, verse 23, I would have a really hard time believing that that could possibly be true. That God could love sinners as He loves His perfect, blameless, eternal Son. But Jesus said so. We are God's delight. We are God's longed for. We are sought out to be enjoyed. And we are sung over, adopted as His own. Now, I know time's getting on. I don't have much more to say. But I'm going to get into a, some logic here and I want you to follow me. So, get, get fresh in your mind. Let's think. We are so in Jesus that whatever persecution is inflicted upon us is inflicted upon Christ. Whatever blessing also, is given to us, is given to Christ. Whatever harm anyone would do to you who are in Jesus is done to Jesus, and whatever love you receive is also given up to Christ. That's, that's the connect, that's how close we are. That's, that's what this union means. We are in Him. So when Paul was on his way to Damascus, when he was still known as Saul, the persecutor, terrorizer of the church. He's on his road to Damascus and there appeared, he was engulfed in this blinding light. And there was a voice that came from heaven, the voice of Christ himself, who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? You know he didn't say that, right? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? wait a second, persecuting Jesus. Jesus is sitting secure, rather comfortable, honored, worshipped in glory. His glorified body is not suffering any kind of affliction. He's not being dragged to prison. He's not being put to death all over again. But he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because whatever is inflicted on the people of Christ is the suffering of Christ Himself. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, He said, whenever you give service to the least of these, whenever you honor someone, whenever you help them, 
whenever you sacrifice, lay yourself down for them, he says, whenever you do it for them, you do it for me. So you have both sides of the spectrum then. Whatever harm is done to us is done to Jesus. And whatever blessing is given to us is given to Christ. Such is our union with Christ. Okay, you're following? Let's go with the logic then. It is the same in our relationship with God. When God loves us, He is loving His Son. When He makes us alive with Christ, there at the beginning of our salvation, when He raises us up, when He seats us in the heavenly places, when He exalts us and when He glorifies us with Christ, I'm not making these things up, I'm pulling from Paul's letters there, that's all going to happen. Has happened and will happen. When He does that for us, to us, He does it unto His Son. Because we are in Christ. Such is our union with Christ. So God could no more condemn you who are in Christ than He could condemn His Son. He could no more cast you out than He could cast out Jesus, His Son. You are as secure in the presence of God as Jesus Christ is secure at the right hand. He can no more resent you than He could resent His Son. He can no more regret having you as as His own as He regrets, as He could regret having Jesus as His Son. Such is our union with Jesus. It is true that God loves us differently from Jesus because we're not identical to Jesus. But it is also true that He loves us no less than Jesus because we are in Jesus. And what God gives to His Son, He gives to us. And what God gives to us, He renders to His Son. So listen, does our sin grieve God? Does He have fatherly displeasure with our sin? Discipline us? Yes, He does. Surely, absolutely. But does God glower over His people? Scowl? Does He regret you? From the top to the bottom of the infinite being, He is glad that you are His. Because you are in Christ. Knowing that, knowing your relationship to God through Christ, when you go into the battle against sin, after you've failed and been wounded in so many spiritual skirmishes, tell me you don't have strength to pick up that sword again. Tell me you don't have strength to keep on going knowing the love of God in Christ, knowing who you are in Jesus. This is all our strength. You are in Jesus. Do you sit here bored? Does the Gospel bore you? Do you find Jesus old, tired, and tedious? Been there, done that? Old, tired, rerun. Is your heart hard to Christ? 
How can you not be compelled by such a love as this? How can your heart still be hard against Jesus? Every sinner, come to Christ again. Put faith in Christ again. Rest all of your salvation in Him. Give Him all your burden. Let Him take it. Follow Christ. Who else is there to follow? Who else can satisfy your soul? Who else can save? It's Jesus alone. For those who believe, you are in Him. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that the love of Jesus would win over every heart. The hearts that are already won over win us again. Help us to realize all that we have in Christ, all we are in Jesus. Lord, compel us, call us to come. If there is a hard heart here, stubborn walls are up, shatter it with the power of your love, irresistible. I pray, Lord, that people would see Jesus from in those confines of the walls of their pride. I pray that they would see through, the light would come through and they would see Jesus and they would, as fast as they could, run over the walls to Christ and cling to Christ in faith. Repent of their sin and put faith in Jesus for everlasting salvation. And I pray, Father, that those who are grounded in the Gospel already, firm believers, unwavering, Lord, revive our souls put our roots down into the Gospel even deeper. Thank You for the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and for the promise that He is coming again to receive us to Himself that where He is, we will be also. We praise You in Christ's name. Amen.